The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Digital Industries Changing the Game, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's digital strategy and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the game changers, I promise you're in the right place. Today's buzz... Please cure me, and me is in capital letters with an exclamation point. What is she talking about? Well, let's get started. Personalized medicine is evolving aggressively, and that's a good thing, with measurable results already seen in key areas. But this important discipline, and we all know that it targets the characteristics of individuals rather than looking at broad populations, it Maybe in its infancy or maybe in its early years, it still has a long way to go to mature. Challenges include effectively targeting the best applications. How do you do it? To whom do you address it? What do you choose to apply it to? And then, of course, there has to be technology underlying it. How do you hone and perfect that supporting technology? So as healthcare providers and researchers are building out their competencies in the areas that matter, we're talking about big data, yes, and analytics. The ultimate gains that we're going to see across multiple industries will expedite the delivery of hope to many more patients, and this is a good thing. So we're talking about hope today. I have a wonderful panel of three experts, and we're going to get started introducing them right now. First up is Ed Cohn, and those of you who want to know how to find him, it's C-O-N-E. That's right. He's the Deputy Director of Thought Leadership and Technology Practice Lead at Oxford Economics. And Ed, who is no stranger to Game Changers Radio, has sent me an interesting quote from William Gibson. By the way, William Gibson, born in 1948, is an American-Canadian speculative fiction novelist, I don't even know what that is, an essayist, and he's been called the noir prophet, that's the dark prophet, of the cyberpunk subgenre of science fiction. Boy, that's a mouthful. But the quote is very simple, and I think you all know it. The future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Ed Cohn, welcome. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're and, delighted. Uh, yep. You want me to talk about that quote a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. I want to know why you picked it for today, and how does it apply okay. to personalized medicine? Well, I love William Gibson. His book, Neuromancer, really did help invent uh, cyberpunk fiction, sci-fi, and uh, it's, it's, uh, and it sort of prefigures uh, a lot of the way we relate to the Internet. Um, that quote, I, I use it a lot. As a matter of fact, uh, probably overuse it, have to take it out of papers because I've already used it, but... In terms of technology in general, um, it speaks volumes that not everybody has the same tools um, and not everybody has the same ability to use them. So we live in a futuristic world 
but much of the world is cut off from technology. There's a digital divide. Um, there are reasons why some people are using what other people might consider to be magic uh, every day. In terms of personalized medicine, I think it's, uh, it's a profoundly important quote because we live in an age of medical miracles, but those miracles are not evenly distributed. So if you have, for example, a, let's call it a popular cancer, I don't mean that people like it, I just mean one that people get a lot of. Um, mm-hmm. If you have breast cancer, you can't watch an NFL football game in the United States without seeing your disease uh, in front and center and, and millions being raised and, and, and great treatments and research coming along. If you're a man, you have the most common cancer, um, you have prostate cancer, there's probably a building at the big med center where you're getting treatment where they do prostate cancer, the prostate cancer building. But if you have an orphan cancer, one of the hmm. rare cancers um, that cumulatively account for 25% of the cancer deaths in the United States every year, but individually strike only thousands of people um, each year for each disease, then these medical miracles aren't distributed to you. And one of the profound hopes of personalized medicine, um, and then we'll talk about some of the more, the ways it's going to be distributed first, um, but one of the profound sort of futuristic hopes is that you're going to see cures for these incurable diseases where there's been no focused research because the money's not there. And frankly, there were, you know, in cold terms, bigger problems to solve. So I think when it comes to personal health and personal medicine, this idea of the uneven distribution of the future is one that is uh, a lot more important than it is than, say, in sci-fi or even routine IT. Very well put, Ed. Thank you so very much. And and this ties back very nicely, I think, to my opening, Please Cure Me, as mm-hmm. far as the distribution. You can see people raising their hands and saying, me, when is it my turn? It's like waiting for a transplant, organ transplant. And it makes me think of the special teams coach of the Denver Broncos, a gentleman who was interviewed on CBS Sunday Morning who has an incurable form of prostate cancer and he's saying I'm going to play I'm going to coach I'm going to do everything I can till the end there is no cure and I can see the fans saying please cure him Ed this is always hard to talk about because we're talking about real people we're talking about people who are in need thank you so much for uh, for introducing that and by the way I am just going to tweet now a picture of the cover of Neuromancer so that we have that up on Twitter (laughs) and I appreciate that it's still on Amazon and thank you very much I'm pleased now to welcome a colleague of yours, Ed Cohen. Her name is Adriana Gregory. She's an associate editor for the technology practice at Oxford Economics. And Adriana has sent me an interesting quote. Uh, We've heard it many times also, but very few people know the source. The quote is, I will not follow where the path may lead, but I will go where there is no path, and I will leave a trail. And the source is actually a lady named Muriel Strode, S-T-R-O-D-E, who was born at See, she lived from 1875 to 1930. She was an American poet and writer. And uh, this particular quote is from her 1903 poem, Wind Wafted Wild Flowers. But what's interesting about Muriel, her full name, Muriel Lieberman Strode, is that she left behind a myriad of inspiring quotes and brief zingers. And very few people know who she is. So, Adriana Gregory, welcome to the show. And thank you for introducing me to the real Muriel Strode. How are you, Adriana? 
Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, Thank you. I have Talk to, to admit that um, I am yeah. also guilty of not having known the source. Um, I had the quote in mind, and um, I thought it was Ralph Waldo Emerson. I saw that it's attributed to him everywhere and um, found out that it's actually, yes, Muriel Strode. So um, I think that, you know, there are lots of quotes with similar sentiments out out there, and, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's difficult for a lot of us to make a decision for a reason other than that it's the easy one, um, you know, hard to go against the path of least resistance. And I think that really is relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, this is, personalized medicine is new territory, um, and it takes a lot of trailblazers to, to really get it right and think beyond the traditional boundaries of medicine, um, disease prevention, diagnosis, and treatment as we know it. So it'll take a lot of, you know, new processes, new tools, new ways of thinking. Thank you very much, Adriana. That is so important. And, and the last part of the quote, I will leave a trail, that's where the hope comes in, isn't it, that, that the people who make the strides in personalized medicine will do something that's replicatable or rec- replicable, uh, that they can leave a trail that can be followed by future trailblazers. Thank you, Adriana. Very nice to meet you, and thanks for the interesting quote. And third on the panel, well, she's no stranger to Game Changers Radio because she's always contributing topics and coming up with interesting panels, and today she's a panelist. It's Susan Rafizadeh. I finally learned to pronounce your last name. She's the Director of Global Marketing of Life Sciences Industries at SAP. And Susan has sent me a quote, introduced me to somebody new. The quote is from Arkady Strugatsky, A-R-K-A-D-Y, Strugatsky, you can figure that out. He was born in 1925 and passed away in 1991. He's a Russian, Soviet-Russian science fiction co-author with his brother, Boris. Their books include Roadside Picnic, Hard to Be God, Beetle in the Anthill, and interestingly enough, they developed their own unique style of science fiction writing that emerged from the period of Soviet rationalism, I didn't even know there was such a thing, in Soviet literature, and evolved into novels that were interpreted as works of social criticism. Here is the quote. I am positive that in the vast majority of cases, we are hammering nails with microscopes. Susan Rafizada, welcome. How are you, Susan? Happy New Year. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining um, us. Talk to me. I like this quote very much um, because I also agree with um, Adriana that we are really at the starting point with personalized medicine. So um, we already have pretty good tools and we can analyze all this big and complex data. But on the other hand, I think currently we don't have the experiences and the best practices to really fully leverage it. So we are entering a really new era and we're analyzing biomarkers and even lifestyles to figure out how diseases really work. And um, the second second thing is um, that I believe that personalized medicine will have even bigger implications on how organizations work. Um, I believe that, um, for example, life sciences companies like pharma or medical device companies that they really need to rethink their business models even because um, personalized medicine is very, very expensive. You have lots of skepticism outside and um, you really have to think through how to make it work. Um, Currently, we have some kind of personalized medicine, but it's not down to really um, to a um, population of one. It's just for a small population, but 
the more and more it will um, develop, and if we really get down to a personalized medicine for a single person, um, it will almost change everything. So I really expect ground-breaking um, changes, and that's why I thought we are hammering um, nails with microscopes. We are already doing something with it, but um, not yet what we could do. Thank you, Susan. Very appreciative. And uh, when we come to the very end of the show, you and Adriana and Ed will be giving me your crystal ball predictions. And I'm hoping, I'm very much hoping, that we will have some optimist, optimistic predictions and some positive, forward-looking comments from all three of you so we can hope that revisiting this topic over and over again will put us closer to solutions for the question, please cure me. Yes, personalized medicine will be truly personalized. So, Ed Cohn, I think we need a little break here, so I'm going to ask you, where are you calling from and what's in your cup today or what are you thinking about drinking? Or, Ed, because it's only February, what were you drinking on New Year's Eve? It was special. I'll give you a choice. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'm actually in Manhattan today. And uh, in a very literal sense, I'm drinking still water because I've learned through hard experience that carbonated water and live radio don't mix well. Um, but I think <laughs> more to I'm your sorry. your yes. point, um, I'm I'm still tasting uh, uh, 2003 Aspis de Bone Burgundy wine that I shared with some good friends on New Year's Day, and I I, te- I say that because. I'm just, like, I'm a guy from North Carolina. It could have been Boone's Farm apple um, <laughs> wine, and I would have been happy. But I have a cousin who's a, a bit grander, and he goes to, to Bone in Burgundy every year and brings back this fabulous wine. And it's, it's pearls before swine with me, but I have some friends, and they're wine guys. And so the pleasure they take in it um, is, you know, and I'll drink it, you know, but... I drink Budweiser, so um, I, 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 I get a lot of pleasure having that in my glass and, and sharing it with people who actually know that it, why it's good. Very well put. I, I know I followed you all the way through that, and I'm very glad I did. Thank you, Ed. Very, very – what was the name of that wine again? It's um, – well, the, one of the great things about it, if you're a wine snob, is you can't get the brand because it's from a tiny um, vineyard in the um, – Bone region at at the top of the the Cote d'Aron, um, but it's uh, the the generic name would be an Uspies. That's with an H. I'm trying to have a good French accent. De Bone, um, and it's a very light and uh, just tasty uh, red wine. Very interesting. Thank you very much. And that's sometimes all we want, isn't it, Ed? Just just a tasty wine that we like, right? Right, Just a wine that makes us, I have one of those wines, it's about eight bucks a bottle, I buy it all the time at the local liquor store, and it's just a nice wine you can drink and say, gee, that tastes good. Yeah, that sometimes that's all it takes. So thank you very much. I'll I'll disclose the uh, the bottle label later. Adriana Gregory, where are you calling from, and what are you drinking, or what are you dreaming about drinking, Adriana? Mm-hmm. Um, I am also in Manhattan. I'm um, in the Oxford Economic Office in Lower Manhattan. Um, I'm like Ed, just drinking water right now. But I guess what you can usually find me drinking is pretty much anything with a mint flavor. Um, mm. I'm at home. I usually have mint tea always. Um, and then I also have an addiction to uh, the Whole Foods brand sparkling mint water. But I really have to check myself because it really doesn't matter if I buy one bottle or six. Whatever I take home is what I'm going to end up consuming that day. So 
I really have to, uh, you know, limit myself, but I love it. Thank you very much. And by the way, I'm on Long Island, so I'm going to lean out the window. It's a beautiful day, and the rest of the snow is dripping off the top of the building. I'm going to lean out my window a little bit and wave to Ed Cohn and Adriana because you're in Manhattan. <laughs> but I can't do the same with Susan Rafizada. Susan, where are you calling from? And you know the drill. What are you drinking? I'm, I'm currently in Frankfurt, Germany. And today I'm actually drinking, drinking lots of black tea. And I will have lots of tea over the next six weeks, actually, because tomorrow the um, Catholic fasting period will start. And since I partied some carnival, I think I have to do that. And um, <laughs> um, especially yesterday, I was in Cologne at the Rose Monday. And I probably had one or two beers um, during that. And um, it, it's really a nice... Um, day in Cologne because they have parades with big vehicles that have sculptures on and um, they do some satire on current politics, local and global ones, and um, they're throwing um, sweets and also with flowers. So it's a really nice um, um, happening there. And I, will I appreciate so. that. Well, thank you. You know, sometimes, Susan, I'm tempted to call this show True Confessions with Game Changers because people tell <laughs> us about what they were drinking when they should or shouldn't have been. And, they, you know, it, Susan, it's just you and me on the, alone in a quiet room and nobody can hear us. So it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you had a good time at, at the festival. That's good. So we're going to take a real break now for just about 60 seconds. And when we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Ed Cohn and Adriana Gregory from Oxford Economics. We're going to talk a little bit about some of their studies and Susan Rafizada at SAP Life Sciences Industries. And our our topic is a very important one. We're talking about personalized medicine, uh, which targets the characteristics of individuals. That's you and me and Ed and Adriana and Susan, real people rather than big populations. And it promises breakthrough results for serious illnesses that have frustrated researchers, physicians, and those of us who are patients for a long, long time. So what's on the horizon? What is happening in the digital world? What does the research show? And how optimistic dare we get? So we're going to take a quick break. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Michael, out. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. SAP, co-innovating alongside customers, is taking its industry-specific solutions into the cloud. Join us to learn how to make the world run simpler in the cloud without missing a beat. It's a tall order. Digital Industries, Changing the Game brings together the people who are making it happen. We'll delve into very specific industry trends and also solutions that run across disparate industries, all to help your business succeed in your mission. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of a digitized world. Digital Industries, Changing the Game is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Digital Industries, Changing the Game, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. 
And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now let's get back to digital industries changing the game. And we're back with Ed Cohn and Adriana Gregory from Oxford Economics and Susan Rafizada at SAP Life Sciences. And I'm Bonnie D. Graham, in case you didn't remember that. I want to do a shout out to Petra Benning and Katerina Mullers Patel at SAP for sponsoring this very interesting series, which just debuted a couple of weeks ago. Today we're talking about personalized medicine. And remember, it promises breakthrough results for serious illnesses that have been perhaps the enigma or the wearing is it? What is it? How do we find it? What do we do about it for researchers and physicians, as well as the patients and their families who are dealing with it directly? So, Ed Cohen, I'm just going to ask you a question. I don't normally do that on the show, but where are we? Let's level set. What's the status and what are we looking at today? Well, I think it's important to understand some definitions. And as Susan alluded to early, we're still in the early stage where the the dream, the sort of sci-fi futuristic personalized medicine, your genome is sequenced and we come up with a cure for you, is that's not quite what we're talking about yet. That's where we want to go. We're still in something that's more analogous to what uh, web-enabled manufacturing brings, which is mass customization. So more precision medicine. And in fact, precision medicine is what the Obama administration called it when they, they funded it last year um, with $215 million um, in, in research funds. And so what you'd find now would be it's not so much you come into my office, I'm your doc, and I say, wow, we, we are going to tweak this molecule to fit you. Uh, we'd like to be there. Where we are now is more, okay, I see you're a 60-year-old male Hispanic smoker, and you have this cardiovascular condition. What we see uh, in our research, which we can crunch the big data and pull this up very rapidly, is of the four predominant treatment types for this cardiovascular condition, people who check the boxes that you check respond best to this one. And so it's tailoring treatments, and it's developing treatments. It, it's, it's much more than just better diagnosis uh, and, and a treatment plan, but it's still in that realm where we're, we're dealing with smaller populations, subgroups. We're looking at biomarkers and saying, huh, people who do this, uh, who have this characteristic, should get this kind of drug. But it's not yet at that truly personal level, uh, certainly not at scale. Okay, so we're we're getting there, right, Ed? We are making progress, but it's it's is it just a gleam in somebody's eye, or is it starting to come together? Well, it it can be much more precise than that, and the treatment levels can be more precise than that, and the use of data can crunch. So when you're crunching big data, you're able to say things like, "Huh, look at this population, and notice." Among that group that's doing the best are people who are taking a blood pressure medicine that has nothing to do with this illness, or we thought it had nothing to do with this illness. So your personal medical history, as well as your uh, genetic signature, definitely is having a role. And of the new drugs approved by the FDA last year, novel treatments approved by the FDA last year, well, about 25 or 35% of them, depending on the illness, were in this realm. So definitely making progress, and it's not just 
sci-fi. It's not just marketing. As we'll discuss through the course of this call, there are a lot of challenges to address to get us there mm-hmm. to that future. But we're, we're in this very exciting you know, serious results are happening early stage, but it, it is an early stage. Yep. Thank you very much. I'm always looking for optimism on these conversations. Adriana Gregory, also at Oxford Economics, thoughts on what Edge has shared. And if you want to share some research results, we'd love to hear some of your statistics if you want to do that now. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, what Ed, the distinction Ed just made between personalized medicine and um, that's really personalized, and then the mass customization is an important one. Um, we're seeing in our research, which you know I can, I will definitely talk about throughout this call. Um, that you know we are at an early stage. Uh, the number one thing that the healthcare um, professionals that we talk to are focused on is improving the efficacy of treatment. You know, this is like they're focused on making it work right now. Um, that said, we are. You know, we are already seeing an impact on patient outcomes, um, and it's expected to increase in, in two years. Okay. You want to give us some stats? Anything uh, specific you want to bring up right now or you want to wait? Sure. Well, um, you know, just over two-thirds of, of the uh, survey respondents today say that personalized medicine is, is having an impact on patient outcomes, and that's going to jump to three-quarters in two years. Thank you very much. Susan Rafizada, comments. What do you agree, disagree? Any comments you want to expand what Ed started with and what Adriana added? Uh, I completely agree. I mean, I cannot disagree with the numbers anyway. But um, if you look at the, um, I've got another statistics also. Um, uh, it's from Grand View Research done in um, summer 2015, and they predict that the um, Personalized medicine market is um, be valued um, at 2.5 billion U.S. dollars by 2022, um, and this would mean um, they started their research in 2014 that um, the market would grow 12% each single year. So um, the market is um, rising massively currently, and um, I think we will see. Um, or the um, industry as well as the healthcare providers will um, are now in a phase where, where they're collecting many very new insights because they're looking at many different um, uh, things like biomarkers, like genomic markers, even lifestyle. Um, they have now the ability to look into details um, because of new IT technology that they were not um, able before. So before it took them a master, th- oh, sorry, a PhD thesis to find mm-hmm. out specific things, and now they can just do it in minutes because the IT has progressed so much and they can analyze stuff much faster than before. Thank you very much. Ed Cohen, I'm going to circle back to you. You want to add something to this part of the discussion, please? Um, well, I would just say that the this progress is going to happen or is happening on so many fronts <laughs> that there's not a ton of coordination and, and there's, there are efforts to coordinate, but as you're hearing, there's scientific work to be done uh, in the lab. There's uh, regulatory work to be done in making sure that data has to be shared and there are standards. There's IT work to be done um, and there's all kinds of culture work to be done within institutions, among patients. So it's one of the reasons that it's going to evolve over time 
is there are so many moving parts. A lot of them are interdependent. I know we're going to get into more detail on some of them uh, ahead, but I think the idea that, you know, is the, uh, some lone ranger in a lab saying you're Eureka, uh, that can happen, but it's got to happen dozens of times, and that's just the beginning of one part of the process. Ed, why don't we get into some of that? I don't. I don't want to wait. I want to want to pump okay. this up. So yeah, go go ahead. Let's introduce some some new concepts here. Go ahead. Okay. So one of the things that was interesting to me is that if you look at what's having an influence on people's personalized medicine practices, and, and we'll, we'll Adriana can jump in and give you the stats on who we talked to and you know what the nature of our survey was. But we went out to some high powered institutions of, of varying types in North America and Europe who are working on personalized medicine. And the role of genomics and other so-called omics, the advanced biosciences, mm-hmm. that's, it's huge, it's important, but it's not the major factor driving personalized medicine programs at this point. So again, the idea that you're going to map my genome and you're going to say, oh, I notice you have this genetic, you know, this mutation or this tendency, and here's a treatment for you, that's happening. It's going to grow in two years. It's important. But a lot of the important stuff that we're doing now is more in that mass customization, population health being reduced to smaller population segments and and tendencies being identified. And some of that is being done with genomic information, with biomarkers and such. But in terms of the raw science and the application of uh, genomics, you know, it's still early days. And as Adriana said, we're still seeing the basic focus uh, being, you know, on the science. And, and I think uh, there's a stat maybe she can pull up uh, that says, you know, one of the impediments we've got is, is developing the science. We are, in, in, in historical terms, five minutes from the first sequencing of the human genome. And, yes, it's a miracle that you can, you personally, the me in your title can have your genome sequenced for, I think, ten thousand dollars. But mm. uh, that's a that's it's huge. But it's it's discovering a continent. It's not, you know, exploring it, populating it, and 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 there's a lot of work left to be done on the science. Thank you, Adriana. Ed was mentioning you have some statistics on this. Can you share those with us? Uh, sure. Um... Just to talk first about um, Mm -hmm. how Ed said that the focus is broader. I mean, he's absolutely right. Um, When we asked respondents, you know, to what extent certain trends are having an impact on their organization, genomics and other advanced biological fields are are lower on the list compared to the broader trends like personalized medicine, patient empowerment, um, population health. Those are the things that for now, are, are really in focus. Um, Ed also mentioned that, you know, there are definitely some obstacles to overcome. Um, and immature and underdeveloped scientific framework is the top obstacle uh, reported by our survey respondents. 74% uh, say that it's quite or very challenging. Thank you. Susan, thoughts? Um, yes, a couple of thoughts. Um, when um, when they said that um, the scientific framework is missing, um, 
I think um, you are tackling two um, opposite um, challenges at the same time. On the one hand, you have the big data, uh, which is caused by the genome alone, um, but also by other other processes that are derived from the genome, which is really complex and really terabytes of data. And on the other hand, you're working with a very small amount of data, and that's the real quality of data, uh, quality data. So you have lots mm -hmm. of noise, lots of data that is not really useful to, for medical insights, and then there are few, um, the very few data um, that lead to new, new insights. And um, so you really have to come up with the algorithms to figure out how to deal with that small data as well. So very big data and very small data, and um, you need the IT tools uh, that help you um, really um, analyze that all. So making tests and scenarios and um, so that the scientists can really um, figure out what makes most sense. And um, then there was another stats that Adriana um, mentioned um, that um, kind of to, what was the one that you talked about first? Sorry. Oh, there was just that um, basically genomics and other advanced biological fields are, you know, less likely to be reported as top trends. Ah, right. That the right. Um, empowered patient pl right. plays a much um, more um, important role. I think um, that if you really want to run personalized medicine, um, it's not one player now. Um, it's the old roles will um, change a little bit. Now you have the patient with the doctor there interacting, and then the doctor is interacting a little bit with the life sciences companies. And I think with personalized medicine, all these roles will come much closer together um, because we are really talking about very small patient populations that apply to the medicines. And so doctors and life sciences companies need to work together to find out where are these patient populations. And um, even the patient has to be much more active in personalized medicine because um, he needs to provide real-time data um, to the doctor, first of all, but also then um, anonymized to the life sciences company um, because our um, um, processes in our bodies are so complex that you need to take into um, account many more factors than you um, probably were thinking of. Because I've heard yesterday um, from a health insurance um, representative that um, sometimes you have a personalized medicine and um, it's applied for somebody with a different genomic marker, so outside mm. the target group, and sometimes it works, and you don't know why. So you really need to um, include much more data than the genome um, only. And that's why uh, the patient needs to really collaborate as well. So um, roles are getting much closer together. Thank you, Susan. Very interesting. And I want to uh, take this back to Ed for a second. Ed, we, I talked in the beginning about please cure me. We talked about that. Personalized sounds like it's going to be something you can just sign up for. You can just go up to this door and say, hi, I have such and such. I want you to test me. I want you to come up with a personalized cure or treatment or something to take my OMG disease and make it perhaps chronic or just make it go away. Is there a democratization of this process, Ed? Or are people able to say, uh, you know, our community has a a bunch of people with this particular syndrome or this disease, and we want to be next on the list for personalized medicine researchers to focus on us. How do you get in that line, Ed? Any any information for us? Well, you know, it, it, especially in the United States, um, the pattern has been that diseases are, well, disease didn't used to be spoken of at all, especially cancer. 
Then somebody famous got cancer, I think probably starting with Betty Ford in the 70s, getting breast cancer, and suddenly it's okay to talk about breast cancer. Um, Pedro Zamora was on MTV uh, in the maybe 90s. Suddenly it was okay to talk about living with HIV. So the, these are population-scale diseases, and they get huge funding. And uh, you're going to see some of that, uh, that continuing pattern of uh, a disease becoming in focus because somebody who's beloved by the, pop- by the public um, attracts attention. So funding flows, campaigns flow. Um, certainly with breast cancer, it's become a marketing machine. Mm-hmm. I think the problem here is that you've got diseases at the personal level that, or even at the, the orphan level, that it's very hard to lobby for. And the economics have to be worked out. Uh, you can say, ultimately, if, if 25% of cancer deaths are in the aggregate from these orphan diseases, then that's a huge number. But breaking it down for that rare cancer that afflicts 10,000 people a year, uh, those 10,000 people, their ability to say, come cure my disease when diabetes is a population health risk, it's very difficult. So the funding model, the economics of it, the politics of it, uh, the regulatory regime around it, all are very challenging. When we look at the stats, we do see an increased focus in the next couple of years, not just on uh, cardiovascular and uh, and diabetes, which are population-scale illnesses, but on these orphan diseases, including orphan cancers. But uh, funding for those is, is scarce, and you're, it's a very plaintive cry. Me, cure me. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure um, that that's in the pipeline for every individual with every rare illness soon enough to make a difference for many or most people. And this is a huge, huge ethical and practical challenge associated with this, this new era of medicine. Thank you for articulating that, Ed. I thought it would be interesting for our audience. And, you know, you never know to whom you're speaking and what their issues are, or their family or their neighbors. And, and this is something that uh, that touches potentially everyone, either personally or somebody you know, waiting in that line. Let me move to another part of our conversation. Susan, I'm looking at your notes. And here's something interesting. Let's talk about the business model here. You say personalized medicine will change business models of pharma and medical devices companies. The old pay-as-you-buy model will be in the past for companies offering personalized medicine. Why, Susan? Tell us. Um, well, if you are offering a personalized medicine, you have to imagine that you, um, if you're going to the extreme, you will only serve one patient. If you're mm-hmm. talking about precision medicine, what is practice right now, you're talking at least um, to a small patient population. And personalized medicine is really expensive. Um, so um, to make personalized medicine work, um, you need to get the reimbursements from the payers, right? And um, they have really to be convinced that it makes sense to um, do that expense. So it really has to improve the patient outcome. And um, there's a lot of skepticism also among doctors. Is it really the personalized medicine or was it for confidence that it worked? Or, um, and so um, the model for personalized medicine because it's so expensive and just for such a small patient population, I'm convinced it will 
move from a quantity-based um, payment model, like I've sold you one package, please pay me amount X, that will be the thing of the past. Um, I think it will move to an outcome-based model so that, um, the, um, that you first have to prove that the um, medicine or drug um, has worked and then the payer pays to the life sciences company. I think that will um, improve um, the acceptance of personalized medicine and um, that will be the way forward. And um, if you do that, um, you will change all your business models, uh, business processes. We will probably get to that later. Um, but um, you really need to um, change the way you talk to your patients because you need that data from that patient and um, you will um, work much closer together with your R&D also because if it worked, um, you still might, might find another angle how to make the um, therapy even better. And um, the second thing is if you um, are... Um, putting to market um, a drug that is for a very small patient population only, um, you will um, have, um, before you had the blockbusters with, uh, where you have one drug from many, many um, people where you made all your money with, but now you're talking about a very small target market. So the um, probability um, that you will have a bigger mix of many products is much higher because um, it's hard to make um, a big company um, survive with only a patient population of 10 people maybe. So you need to offer much more products than before or that would be the other option. You could say, okay, I have um, a certain percentage of traditional drugs plus one or two personalized medicines. So that would be the second um, difference between the traditional model. Thank you, Susan. Interesting. Adriana, you have anything you want to add to this or add? I'm open. Yeah, um, I thought that was an interesting discussion, and it's obviously very important to talk about how to make personalized medicine affordable. You know, there are lots of different discussions about, you know, outcomes-based medicine, um, possibly incentivizing drug developers to share data with each other, and of course, mm. all of that is going to lead to challenges with technology and, and working through privacy challenges as well. Thank that's you. That's so important. Wait, 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 yeah. I mean, that, nice segue too, but that's the, the need to share data is one of the, you know, the research implications of that are obvious, but the culture change within institutions and among patients to allow the sharing of data uh, personal data has huge cost implications too because mm -hmm. the broader your data pool, uh, the better able you are to analyze it. And one of the real needs we see is for uh, both predictive and big data analytics. Um, and it's, it's a new model of medicine and it's a, certainly a new model in pharma development and uh, Susan's more an expert there than I am, but this idea of cooperation uh, instead of this intensely competitive uh, race to get the next blockbuster drug for a mass population, it's a huge culture shift. And the, the culture underlies almost every part of what we're talking about. But the need to implement technology to store and sift this data and make meaning from it um, has, has big implications for the research, but the, also for the economics. Thank you very much. Susan, 
I want to bring in one more topic. Let's see. We have about seven, eight minutes till we get to our crystal ball predictions at the end. Let's talk about who will be the people in the trenches in life science companies who will be taking this forward. And I'm, I'm looking at your notes here and you say personalized medicine will require completely new talents in life sciences companies. If you cannot buy them, meaning the people, the talents, train them sooner rather than later. Susan, who are these people? What's, what is lacking in the people working in life sciences today, let's say in the research sector? Talk to me. Um, today, um, I don't want to talk now about all the life sciences co- companies, mm-hmm. but the tendency is that in the R&D departments, you have the scientists. In the um, marketing departments, you have more the business-educated um, people. And so on. So you, at the moment, you have more siloed structures where every department has its, its um, specialists. And I think with personalized medicine, um, that will need to change. So um, in R and D, for example, you will need um, to have people who are also able, who are also entrepreneurs at the same time. So um, if you're working on a drug and really investing your R and D money into it. Um, you have to um, be able to conclude what are the implications of that drug if it is successful. What does it mean for my procurement? What does it mean for the supply chain and manufacturing? How will that affect the costs? And will it be able to um, bring profits in the end? I mean, it sounds now very cruel. We're talking about curing people um, with very rare illnesses. But on the other hand, it's a responsibility of the life sciences company to survive because um, Patients are now relying on that company, and if it uh, won't survive, then the drug will be gone. So um, you have to think about profits as well. And since you're talking about very targeted drugs, you have to start with that thought already in the R&D um, stages. So you will be will need much more generalist people than before, and um, you probably will need to change all the education of um, people who are studying science um, currently. They probably have to study um, economics as well and change management and you will work much closer together even within an enterprise. Susan, will this change the medical school curriculum? And when you say sciences, are you talking about doctors and PAs and and, uh, lab technicians? How how far into life sciences does this go, do you see? Um, Yes, I would... I would recommend for, for the long run that you even already start in the university if you're studying medicine that you also um, get a basic understanding of economics, for example, how a company works. Um, and of course now within the company where you have the traditional um, R&D scientists um, that they um, are trained to think more economically and that they talk to their um, peers um, in the other departments. Um, I think um, it has to come from both sides, from the young people who are now um, graduating as well as from the experienced people because you don't want to lose their knowledge um, and, and keep them in the silo, right? You um, want them to contribute to these new um, innovations as well. Thank Absolutely. you. Ed, thank you, Susan. Very well put. Ed Cohn, love to get your thoughts on this. Well, I, I think the uh, talent mix has to change in these companies. And, and again, um, I'm going to lean on Adriana for some, some data here, but, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of data scientists and high-level science scientists um, at research institutions and pharma companies, and there are these emerging fields, uh, biometricians and some, some pretty uh, high pollutant titles there. But what we saw in this survey of, of 
research institutions and, and hospitals and, and pharma companies in North America and Europe is they're having uh, a real need for the, the worker bees. They need mm-hmm. programmers. They need IT people. Uh, they need IT support people. And stuff that you maybe not, don't think of as the glamour jobs that are going to change the delivery uh, and the practice of medicine, but when you're building databases and you're trying to standardize data to share across networks that don't even exist yet, you'd better have some, uh, some IT staff in place. And, and our survey uh, shows pretty clearly that this is a real challenge for people. And further, again, Adriana's got the numbers, uh, we're not sure that they're doing enough to attract and retain the right people in this area because we know what it takes to get people in the marketplace, and we don't think they're uh, focused enough on it. Mm, Adriana, we'd love to hear some of these numbers. What have you got? Sure. Um, Well, we've been talking so much just in the last few minutes about how important big data is um, and how important it's going to be to the progress of personalized medicine. Despite all that, only 42% of the people we surveyed say they have the the analytics skills they need to sustain their practice, and only a third say they are equipped with the programming skills they need. Um, And as Ed started to talk about, um, even more concerning than this is the fact that none of them, the people that we talked to, are really making big changes to the way they, they get the skills they need. They're not taking big steps in recruitment and retention. Um, we found that, you know, currently the, the biggest efforts are around enhanced onboarding or um, increased training, um, and that's about half of the respondents we talked to. And those are all good efforts, but it's possible that with such serious talent gaps, you need to take bigger steps. Um, perhaps one interesting stat to mention is that just 14% say that they're um, planning to increase pay in order to attract more workers. So that's a pretty low number for something that we know is very important. Thank you, Adriana. Ed, any comments on those stats? Is that what you were looking for? Yeah, um, Adriana and I worked on a big program for SAP a couple of years ago about workforce development. And look, we all want meaning in our work. That's very important. But the number one guarantor or influence, at least, on uh, worker satisfaction is fair and competitive compensation. So those compensation numbers twinned with the low numbers of available skills that they have now were problematic. Uh, they, they were troubling to me, at least. Okay. Susan, any thoughts on this, what your colleagues on the panel just shared about training? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised about the outcome of their statistics, actually, because um I was expecting that um, the investments are really um, up right now. Um, I've read in another research from PricewaterhouseCoopers that um, 51% of the CEOs in life sciences are worried about um, the skill sets in, the, in companies, but only tw- 28% of the CEOs in life sciences believe that they have the top talent. So I thought they would really invest into it, but probably that's more a long-term um, a long-term approach to invest more into um, hiring new talent rather than in the next one to two years. That would be the only explanation that I would have why these numbers are like that. Appreciate that. Ed Cohn, guess what? It's time for us to go around to the crystal ball part of the show, and I'm going to ask you to predict 
I love the year 2020, Ed. Up to you. You can go sooner, later, or just hone in on 2020. What do you think will be different about this topic? Specifically, uh, how far advanced will we come with personalized medicine or jobs or uh, new training or investments or business models? Anything, everything. I'm going to give you one minute. for Actually, take 90 seconds, Ed Cohn. Predictions go, please. I think, first of all, in, in four years, uh, this is going to be so much more mainstream and we'll probably, maybe not by then, but soon after, quit calling it personalized medicine or precision medicine and just start calling it medicine. I think that the funding focus and the regulatory focus was boosted immeasurably by, or maybe just measurably a lot, uh, by Obama's pledge for a moonshot uh, to cure cancer. Uh, that is hype and marketing. It's not going to cure cancer, and uh, but it's important to have that focus and the United States at least, which trails Europe in a lot of key areas, uh, seems to be refocusing on uh, in funding and, and in public policy just a bit as we head into the election year. Um, I think that's very promising. Finally, I, I think we're going to find cures in places we didn't expect to find cures. There are breast cancers that are less like other breast cancers than they are like cancers in other parts of the body. I think we're going to sift through big data and find connections. I think this is a great hope for orphan illnesses that we're going to set out to cure one thing, and it's not going to work, but it's going to end up working for something else. That actually happens quite a bit already. And finally, um, you know, nothing nothing works exactly as planned. I think there are going to be a lot of disappointments because there are always disappointments, and there are going to be a lot of unexpected victories. Um, and I think, look, we, we're going to still have finite lifespans. We're going to remain mortal. But hopefully, if not us, our children are going to have healthier and uh, more comfortable experiences as they deal with the inevitable diseases uh, that we face. So I'm going to base my prediction on our, our survey data, but, um, you know, I think that the data really points to continuing adoption of personalized medicine. You know, we see the focus focus on this increasing over the next two years and beyond. Um, we're going to see technology improve, whether it's big data for researchers or decision support for doctors or even, you know, technologies that patients are using directly, like wearables. I think it will all contribute to this culture of personalized medicine and and figuring out um, really how to move it forward. Yeah, um, I completely agree with Adriana, but um, for the crystal ball prediction, I would like to go um, 100 years ahead. Um, And I think um, that in 100 years, we won't focus too much more on personalized medicine anymore. I think that in 100 years we will use our genetic profile and um, all other um, medical traits to really um, run preventive activities so that we don't even get the diseases. I hope that we will be there um, in 100 years. 
Thank you very much to our special panelists for sharing your insights, your expertise, your vision, and your research on this topic, Digital Evolution Personalized Medicine, important to everyone around the world. Ed Cohn and Adriana Gregory at Oxford Economics, we appreciate your time. Susan Rafizada at SAP, always good to talk to you. And a shout-out to our series sponsors, Katharina Mellers-Patel and Petra Benning at SAP. Also to our business channel team for getting us on the air. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Digital Industries, Changing the Game, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 